Well, thank you, music team up here and music team out here as we have worshipped well together in song, admonishing one another in hymns and spiritual songs and psalms, even as the psalms were read. Now we turn to the scriptures once again, and we want to be spiritually warmed. It's the coldest day, coldest weekend that we might have this year, and uh, we want to see in the scriptures where it warms our hearts, even hard passages like we've been looking at here in Romans 1, will indeed warm our hearts if we understand what God is, is trying to say. We're back in Romans chapter 1, and I want to bring to you a message, all mankind is without excuse. There's a lot of excuses that modern people, Christians sometimes want to make, and God says all mankind is without excuse when we stand before God. Last week, we looked at verse 18 as we started this new section of Paul's argument in Romans. And so let me read to you just 18 through 23 so you can get the context of where we're going to be today. We'll be looking at 19 and 20 specifically today. The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him, or glorify Him is a better translation there, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and in their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures." So here Paul continues his argument, and really if I was to phrase it in a way that we would understand today, Paul is addressing an objection. He's addressing a question that we often get as Christians, and the question goes like this. Sometimes Christians themselves ask this question. What about the people who haven't heard the gospel? It's an important question, because if we're going to care about evangelism, if we're going to care about missions, what about the people who haven't heard the gospel? Now, throughout church history, many different answers have been given to this question. In 2020, Ligonier Ministries put out a survey, and they were asking people who went to church, people who went to an evangelical church that taught the Bible, that preached the gospel, various theological questions. One of the questions was, do you agree with this statement? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 42% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement, that God accepts all religious worship. 42%. To say that people are a bit confused on this subject is an understatement. Generally, people have answered the question of what about those who've never heard the gospel in three different ways. There's the universalist who says, everyone's going to be saved. It doesn't matter if they hear the gospel or not. The universalist says, everyone's going to heaven. Of course, that was rejected early on in church history because it does not fit with the scriptures. The second and more popular view today is called inclusivism. That people are saved through the work of Christ, but they don't actually have to hear the gospel. They don't have to put faith in Christ. In other words, God saves them without them ever knowing it at some point in their life or after they die. There's various ways that this is explained. People say that they can just respond to God, their creator. Just as long as they acknowledge there is a God, then they will be saved by the work of Christ. Others say that they can be saved through other world religions. As long as they practice in good faith through that religion, then God will apply the atonement of Christ on their behalf. This is the view, basically, of the Roman Catholic Church since the Second Vatican Council. They claim that those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them 
to the dictates of conscience. In other words, as long as they live a good life, even if they're in the, another religion, they can be saved by the blood of Christ. Famously, C.S. Lewis held this view. You find this in his book on children's fiction, The Last Battle, where the character Emmeth is a worshiper of a false god, and yet he's surprised to find himself in heaven. When the other characters go to heaven, he is surprised and sort of stumbling around like he shouldn't be there. There's also those who say after death, people will get a second chance if they've never heard the gospel, and they'll get the atonement of Christ applied to them after death. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is Paul deals with that objection. He deals with certainly universalism, but even inclusivism. Because what the Bible teaches is that faith in Christ alone is the only way to be saved. Faith in the coming Messiah, if you lived before Christ came in the Old Testament era, and you heard of the coming Messiah, you put your trust in Him, you put your trust in God, the promises of God, that He would bring a Savior. But since the cross... We put our trust in the one who came to die on the cross for sinners. And it's only through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be saved. This is referred to in theological circles as exclusivism. So you have universalism, that's everybody. Inclusivism, that's not everybody, but people might not even know that they're saved. And then exclusivism, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, he says, except through me. Except It's exclusive. You're only there if you come through Christ. So again, the question, what about people, though, who've never heard the truth? Because not everybody hears the truth, do they? Does everybody know the truth of Christ? Can't they give an objection to God at the judgment? Can't they say to God, look, God, why are you sending me to hell when I've never heard of Christ? When I've never heard this gospel? Is that even fair. We talk a lot about fairness according to our standards today. And people will say, that's not fair, God. We're going to come back to answer those questions after we examine what Paul is saying here in this text. Remember, he's been talking about the wrath of God in verse 18. He said, the wrath of God is revealed, presently being revealed from heaven. It's clear that it's coming from God. It's coming from his throne against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's talking here about the Gentiles. He's talking about basically all mankind except the Jews, which he talks about in chapter 2. They don't get out of the judgment either. They're judged on the standard that they were given, which is even more revelation than the Gentiles had. But again, the question is, why would God reveal his wrath upon the whole world, all mankind, all the Gentiles who've never even heard of the Messiah? And Paul says it's simple. Because they suppress the truth that they have. It's not about not hearing something. It's about God actually showing them something and they are actually suppressing that. What they do have, the knowledge they do have about God, they are suppressing. So what is this truth at the end of verse 18 that Paul says, God's wrath is coming against them. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is this truth? Well, that's what he opens up here starting in Verse 19, what truth do people suppress? And I want to look at this under three headings. He has told us back in verse 17 that God's righteousness is revealed to anyone who has faith in Christ. You hear the gospel, God's righteousness is being revealed up until this day when people hear the gospel and they believe in Christ and they get his righteousness applied to them and their sin taken away. And they are righteous in God's sight, declared righteous, and actually perfectly made that way at the resurrection. But declared from the moment they trust in Him. That's why Paul is saying all of that he's saying, and the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, most of chapter 3. Because there's people who are under the wrath of God. Why take the gospel out? Not to build necessarily numbers in the church. Not to pat yourself on the back. Not to get rewards in heaven, which there will be rewards in heaven for how you serve the Lord. But Paul says, first of all, it's because the wrath of God is upon them. They are suppressing the truth and God's wrath. He's abandoned them already. That's part of his wrath. And there's a coming wrath in the day of judgment. Let's look how Paul explains this. Verse 19. Let's look at the God who makes himself known. A lot of people say, 
They don't believe in God. Atheists, of course, say they don't believe in God at all. Of course, all they do is talk about God, but then tell us they don't believe in God. The agnostic says, well, we really just can't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. The agnostic is just in this realm of not wanting to state for sure if there is a God. Many scientists are trying to prove there is a God or disprove there is a God. Many Christians look at the unbeliever and say, I've got to convince them that there is a God. Well, the Bible says that God makes himself known to everyone. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. So he starts off the sentence with because. He's explaining in more detail why the wrath of God is being revealed against the Gentile world. The reason why is because they suppress the truth. What truth? That they actually know something about God. God is capable of being known. And is known, Paul says, by everyone. On the day of judgment, the Gentiles might say, we never knew you. We never even knew you. And Paul says, no, no, all people know God because he made sure that they know him. They can't claim that they don't know God when he has revealed himself to them. So Paul answers this simply by saying they do know God. They know some things about God. They know that God exists because he has made it evident to them. God didn't come down and show himself and argue with them. He didn't try to convince them based on all this evidence. No, he has already revealed in their heart that there is a God and he is their creator. These are basic facts that everyone knows. Everyone who's ever been born, who has the ability to reason and think and see, knows that there is a God. How can that be? Well, he tells us, for God made it evident to them. That's the only reason we ever know anything about God, whether it's through Scripture or the natural world, which we're going to look at. It's because God reveals himself. He is God. How can we know anything about him unless he reveals himself to us? God has to come to us and tell us about himself. We can't go to him. Even though people think they have experiences where they go to heaven and learn all these things. The Bible says God comes to us. Even in the Old Testament where people had miraculous visions or Paul himself who had a vision of heaven. That's because God took the initiative. God acted to reveal himself. He's caused himself to be known. He has made it plain to all mankind, to all Gentiles. How? By just simply creating the human mind. To be able to know God. He's created the mind so that we can know Him. We can observe things. We can consider things. And reason, look, there must be a creator. There must be a God. The reformer John Calvin said that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world. And that eyes were given him. He's talking about spiritual eyes. That he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led to the author himself. That God has created things, including us, in such a way that he has revealed his existence to all mankind. This is deliberate. This is not accidental. God didn't accidentally reveal himself in creation. It's saying everyone knows that there is a God. And even some specific things we're going to see in a moment that people know about God. Everyone. Because God made it evident to them. If God decides to do something, do you think he's doing it? Do you think he's going to do it? Do you think he will do it? Of course. It's God. If he says God made it evident in the past and it's still going on today, then it indeed is happening. All humankind, all mankind knows that there is a God. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It's not an accidental byproduct of God's work. No one can understand God as he is unless God chooses to reveal himself. Does man discover God by seeking him out first? It's it's just not possible. We We can't do it. God must reveal himself to us. Another commentator, Hal Dane, says, There's no one who can manifest God to man except himself. And consequently, that all we know of him must be founded on his own revelation, not on the authority of any creature. You see, all other religions, you have to trust the person who came up with that religion. 
you have to trust the founder of that religion, Muhammad, Buddha, all the ancient Hindus who came up with Hinduism. But when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to our faith, we have God revealing Himself. He is the ultimate source of what we are to believe, what we are to think about Him, how we are to live. He has revealed Himself to us. Now, some might say, well, hold on a second. You're telling me that everyone knows God? Doesn't the Bible say in multiple places that no one really knows God? Especially before they're saved? 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world doesn't know God, he says. This is the same author that wrote Romans here. Galatians 4.8, again Paul. However, at that time, when you did not know God... You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Paul says to the Galatians, look, there was a time when you didn't even know God. You are a slave to the false gods. Again, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, he said the Gentiles who do not know God. So how can he say they didn't know God before they were saved? And now he says in Romans that everyone knows God. How do we resolve that? Those other contexts, those other verses that I gave you are talking about a saving knowledge. They did not have a saving knowledge of God. There's a saving knowledge. There's the knowledge that Christians have, a saving relationship, a saving knowledge of God. We really know him like a husband knows a wife. You're closer to your spouse in a marriage than you are with an extended family member or friend. But there is, in Romans 1, Paul says, a general knowledge of God. Everybody knows God at a basic creator level. Christians, those in the faith, know God in a saving relationship and a saving knowledge of God. So we have to get the context to understand. And those other letters he's talking about salvation here, what is he talking about? The wrath of God being poured out on those who are living an unrighteous life, an ungodly life. So let's consider more closely here this next point. And let's look at what Paul's saying, because this is really the key part of his argument here, the message of creation. The message of creation. God's creation is preaching a message. It proclaims a message all the time, every moment, every second. The creation is telling us something. Not something you hear, not something you can tune into, although people have all kinds of gadgets where they can measure different sounds and movements and things that we can't even see or hear with our senses. But all of creation is telling us something about God. It's saying, basically what Paul's saying here, even the pagan who lives on an island in the middle of nowhere, has no TV, cell phone, no internet, still knows that there is a God, and they even know something about that God. I had a seminary professor, and he said, why, why do people always want to put the guy on an island? Let's just make him blind down in a cave, 100 feet under the ground. It doesn't matter. Everyone, it says knows God, because God has made it evident to them within them. So verse 20, the message of creation, 4. So he's going to explain how do people know God? That's, that's a good question. How do we know God even before we're saved? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his invisible attributes. Well, God is spirit. God is spirit, and you can't see a spirit. That's what makes him invisible. In fact, the word attributes is inserted into our translation. It just says, for, from the creation of the world, his invisible. His invisible what? Well, the idea is his characteristics, his perfections. They're invisible. He's invisible. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. It's only through Christ that we can even understand God truly in a saving way. And that's the case John is making in John 1. But again, Paul in, in Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ, it says he is the image of the invisible God. Same Greek word as we find here in Romans, the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. God is invisible. So how can we know that there is a God if we don't see him? Hebrews 11.27 refers to God as him who is unseen. Again, the same Greek word for invisible. So God is invisible. 
and his attributes are invisible, then how can we see him? How can we know that he exists? Come on, Paul, make your case. Well, first he's going in our English translations. Now in the Greek, this whole verse is ordered differently. But in our English translations, it's going to tell us the actual attributes that we can see in the creation. His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Not just discovered if you work really hard enough. Not just by the astronauts who go into space that see the magnificence of space as they look back at the earth. Not just the scientist who studies in great detail God's creation. Clearly seen. Everyone clearly sees something about God, even though he's invisible. I mean, here's a paradox right here. Clearly seen. How can you clearly see something that's invisible? But Paul says, an eternal power, and the word eternal modifies both. So both his divine nature and power are both eternal, always existing. His power is his omnipotence. He is the all-powerful God. He created all things. There can be nothing more powerful than that. To create life from nothing. He's also God. He's divine. He's deity. He has a divine nature. And it's eternal. And Paul says these have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. How does that work? Well, we can't see God. And we can't see his attributes, but we can see his work. That's what Paul's getting at. His workmanship, his eternal power and divinity can clearly be seen not by looking at God. We don't expect God to show up and prove himself to us. God says, I gave you all of this, everything. And that's what Paul says. Here's the key. Being understood through what has been made. How do they know God? How does the Gentile who's never had the Bible, they've never had a preacher, they've never had a prophet come to them and talk to them about the one true God. Paul, how can you say they know God? Because he says they can understand God through what has been made. Now, not all understanding, even as Christians, and we have the Bible, we don't have all understanding of God. But there is some understanding. These, Particularly these two attributes. His power and the fact that he is divine. The fact that he is deity can be understood through what has been made. What is that which has been made? It's the creation. It's God's workmanship. God is invisible, but his majestic power, his divine nature is shown through all the creation. It's engraved in creation, we might say. It's stitched through the fabric of creation. It is understood. It is perceived in the mind. Sure, science is all about discovering the things that God has already created. But even the pagan and the first century, or even in Moses' day, or even before that, knows there is a God because they understand by looking at creation. How long has this knowledge been available? We'll go back to the beginning of verse 20. From the beginning of creation. Look at how much creation talk is here. From the beginning of creation. And it's even more than that. Since the creation, there's the first mention, of the world, which really is cosmos in Greek, so it's the universe, again, mentioning creation, that which has been made. So three times in this one verse, the reference to creation is being made here. It's that important. Now later, we're going to see a few weeks where people start to worship creation. It's not more important than God, but it is his work, and it does tell us something about him. We shouldn't worship it, though. That's where people went wrong. That's where they went into sin. They denied the one true God and worshipped the creation. But this has been around from the beginning. The cosmos, the universe, shows us that there is an all-powerful God. Even pagans in ancient times, they knew that there was a creator God. You find this in the writings of the ancient philosophers. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said, God, unseen by any mortal nature is to be seen by the works themselves. There's a pagan reasoning that there is a creator God who can't be seen, but through his works, you know he's there. The Roman philosopher Cicero, he told his countrymen in his writings, you do not see God, yet you recognize God by his works. And even the early church father, Tertullian, would go and write and talk to the pagans of his day, 
And he would say, we Christians worship one God. The one whom you all naturally know at whose lightnings and thunders you tremble. He says, look, you all know that there is a God. And the God that I'm telling you about, his son, the Savior, that same God you already know in creation. And you hear him in the thunder. You hear him. You see him in the lightning. There's so many scriptures on this. Let's look at a few, though, where it talks about believers even realizing, believers realizing that God shows himself in the creation. Psalm 139, 13. For you have formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. How do two cells go to us? How does that happen? That is a magnificent work of God. Two cells, a sperm and an egg, turns into a full-grown adult, 37 trillion cells. How does that happen? And if you break that down into just atoms, the atomic level, seven octillion atoms. That's a seven with 29 zeros after it. All being held in place. Now some of us, we're losing parts of ourselves as time goes on. We've got some aging body parts, but still God's holding us together. Think about that, the energy that it takes. What God is doing in creation and in His providence. You're not just floating off into space, parts of you. God is holding all things together. That's just the human body. Consider the stars, consider the heavens. Over and over in the Bible, it talks about how God has stretched out the heavens. Because even in ancient times, they could look up to the stars and marvel at what God has done. Psalm 147.4, He counts the number of the stars. Meaning there's no one that can truly count the number of the stars but God. And he gives names to all of them. He knows all those stars so well because he created them that he could name them. No one else can name all of them. We can't even see all of them. Isaiah 40, 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, from the time the earth was created? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Often when God wants to encourage his people, even though we have the special revelation of the Bible, he will remind us there that he is the all-powerful creator. And it's something that all people know, even if they don't have a Bible, even if they've never heard the gospel, they still know there's a creator. Turn to Job. It has so much about God's power that we need to examine a few of these. Job 9 and verse 5. Just language that even the unbeliever knows that there is a creator because God is the majestic creator of all things. Job 9, 5. It is God who removes the mountains. Earthquakes, movement of plates upon the earth's crust, everything. It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. No one knows how God moves the mountains. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens. There's a phrase that's used over and over in the Old Testament to speak of creation. He stretches out the heavens like a tent that's being stretched out and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, these are constellations, the bear, Orion, uh, the Pleiades. The Pleiades is that tiny, tiny dipper. My kids were always telling me, that, that's the little dipper. No, that's a tiny dipper. And it's actually called the Pleiades. Just some facts about the Pleiades. It's 800 stars. 800 stars in that tiny little constellation. And it's 410 light years from Earth. And here it is in the Bible. God made that. He made Orion, the great hunter that you can see across the southern sky right now at night. All of these stars. God didn't just throw them out there, but he actually seems to have put them in certain order that we can look at them and name them. And the chambers of the south, there's still debate on what constellations those are that Job would be recognizing as God speaks with him. Who does great things unfathomable. You can't even understand them. Wondrous works without number. 
Let's go forward now to Job 37. 37 37.2. This is Elihu speaking of God. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice. So thunder is often referenced in Scripture as being like God's voice. And the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Listen to the thunder that you hear. Under the whole heaven, he, God, lets it loose. And his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously. Doing great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour and the rain be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. All men know his work. All men can look at that ice and say there must be a creator that made that fall from the sky. And now here it is, frozen solid. Let's go now to Job 39. What about creatures? What about animals? Well, here we see in Job 39, just in 1 and 2, he starts listing the wild animals that man can't even control. He talks about goats. Uh, Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Do you know the time they give birth? The only reason we know this is because people have actually captured them in more recent times and studied them. But back then, there was no way. You, You didn't even see when an animal out in the wild had birth. He goes on, he talks about donkeys, wild donkeys. He talks about battle horses, wild oxen, all of these different animals. Go now to Job 40. He comes in verse 15 here to the greatest animals, the greatest, most magnificent animals that he created. Behold now, behemoth. Behemoth, this massive animal. It sounds dinosaur-like which I made as well as you. I made the humans. Look, I made you. You're magnificent. And look at this wonderful beast. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength and his loins, his power and the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. We're talking cedars of Lebanon. His tail is huge. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. I don't think he's talking about a hippo or a um, crocodile here. That's not going to make Job say, wow, that is an amazing God who could create that. This thing's huge. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Now, that's not a hippo or a crocodile. He's the first. He's the mightiest. He's the largest of the ways of God, the works of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Look, if anyone else wants to claim to have made that thing, Then come up here and fight him with the sword. In other words, God is the one who's made him. Surely the mountains bring him food. All the beasts of the field play there. And he goes on to talk about under the lotus he lies down. And in verse 24, can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs. Can anyone pierce his nose? He's so magnificent. You can't even capture him. Chapter 41. Here's a sea creature, Leviathan. I don't think this is a whale. Listen to this. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? There were many people throwing spears at whales and catching them in ancient times. God says, look, this magnificent creature, this mighty part of my creation, no one can do that. Will he make many supplications to you? Does he answer to your voice? Will he speak to you soft words? Now, he has to obey God's voice. He is God's creation. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you bind him for your maidens? And he goes on to talk about how magnificent this creature is. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? You see, this isn't a crocodile because God is saying, this creature so magnificent, you can't stand before him. It would be as if you could stand before me. That's how powerful this creature is that I've created. And he goes on to talk about his limbs, how large they are. The doors of his face, his jaws are like doors. His teeth have this terror. He has armor like scales. This is a dragon-like creature that lives in the water. Verse 18, his sneezes flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. 
Out of his mouth come burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot. The only reason that God can say these things to Job is that Job understands what these creatures are. Now, we don't today. I think they've passed on. They've died off. Maybe there's one they'll find at the bottom of the ocean someday. But we have lots of fossils that show there are magnificent beasts that once existed on the earth. This is how magnificent creation is. That's God's argument to Job. Look how powerful my creation is. And that speaks of my power, God says. And you know what's interesting about all this talk in Job with these mighty beasts and the thunder and the earthquakes? Is that Job says in 26.14, here he is talking, God is, about all the magnificent creation and creatures. And in 26.14, Job says, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. That's just a fringe. That's just the edge of his ways. Oh, he says, how faint a word we hear of him. We're just hearing a whisper, the little bit that we know of God. And it's magnificent. It's mighty. It's enough to tell us there is an all-powerful God that created all things. It's just the fringes of his ways. Leviathan, earthquakes, hurricanes, pandemics. They're just a fringe of God's power. We can't even understand all that God is. This is why Charles Spurgeon said about this idea that all mankind knows that there is a God through creation. Spurgeon said, the sun, the moon, the stars are God's traveling preachers. They're apostles upon their journey. They're confirming those who regard the Lord and judges on circuit, condemning those who worship idols. He's getting to where we're going with the text. Is that the creation proclaims the message. It's like a preacher proclaiming the truth. And those who don't acknowledge the truth are going to be judged. In the Reformed Confession, the Belgic Confession, they write about this idea. It says, By the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book. It's a book that we can read. It's like the Bible in a sense. We can look at creation and we can see there is a God. And they say, it's a magnificent book. Wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even His everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says. John Calvin said, Men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see Him. Upon His individual works, He has engraved unmistakable marks of His glory. So clear, so prominent, that even unlettered, uneducated folk cannot plead the excuse of ignorance. God has made it so clear that anyone can see that there is a God. That's why the Puritan Stephen Charnock said, every plant, every atom, as well as every star at the first meeting whispers this in our ears. I have a creator. I am a witness to deity. Everything is whispering to us that God is the creator. Don't you see why evolution is such a big issue? What the point of pushing that upon a society is? If you can get people to deny that God created, that God created according to His Word, then you're just that much closer to getting people to suppress that truth that there is a God. In fact, many people who believe in evolution go on to deny the existence of God. But Paul says it's not that easy. Everyone knows there is a God. You can't deny that God exists. doesn't change the fact, though, that our culture is obsessed with trying to prove that God did not create the universe. And it's always funny, they come out with these articles and they say, well, we know that the world or the universe looks like it's been created, but we have another explanation. Well, if it looks like it's been created, if it looks like it's been intelligently designed, that's because it is. Because it's obvious. Even the pagans know God, but they only know that he exists. They don't know him as a redeemer. The creation alone will not save anyone. Simply by acknowledging that there is a creation, that there is a God, that is not salvation. Now, we have what's called special revelation in the Bible. 
When God talks to his people, that's special revelation. He has chosen a group of people to reveal his saving knowledge to. We get the gospel through special revelation. It's all recorded in the Bible for us. And we can look there. God's special revelation. That's where we hear the gospel. That's the message, the saving message of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about in creation, that's called natural or general. General because it goes out to everybody. Natural because it's in nature. Natural revelation. General revelation. This is simply the knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law that comes through creation to all humanity. That's four verses in the Bible that show this idea of a natural or general revelation. One is in Romans 1. And now let's go to Psalm 19, a great passage on natural and special revelation. What does God reveal in his general revelation to everybody? Well, we've been talking about creation. That's in Romans 1, again here in Psalm 19. And look how clear this passage is. I mean, you can imagine Paul thinking about Psalm 19 as he is writing Romans 1. First verse. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Talking about the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the expanse of the heavens, space. All that we're discovering and learning. They are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. He's using preacher language. They're declaring. They're preaching a message. Day to day pours forth speech. Every single day there's words coming out of creation. Not audible words. But knowledge about God, that He exists. And night to night reveals knowledge. There's some knowledge we can gain just from looking up at the stars at night. Not special knowledge. Sometimes people write books on how constellations proclaim the gospel. No, it's not there in the stars. That's in the Bible. But it does tell us there is a creator. Psalm 19.3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So they're not actually talking Words we can hear. Their line, though, has gone out through all the earth, everybody. Their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's glorious. The sun comes up every morning. It's beautiful. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising as from one end of the heavens. It's circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun shines on the whole earth. And God makes it come up and go down every day. That is general revelation. Everyone, the whole earth sees that. Now, if you were to read the rest of the psalm, which we won't do now, but it is about God's special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. The commandments of God are wonderful. That's the Bible. That's God's special revelation to his people. But the general goes out to everyone. What else does God reveal to everyone? Well, if we go forward in Romans to chapter 2, and we'll come to this passage. He not only shows that he is the all-powerful creator, but in Romans 2, 14 and 15, it says that God put a conscience in us. We know right from wrong, both Jew and Gentile. We know right from wrong. Even if we don't have a Bible, we know right from wrong. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Everyone understands right from wrong. They might deny it. They might resist what's right, but they know. Let's look at one other. So God reveals in creation that he exists. He reveals to our conscience. That's that little thermometer or needle that tells us right from wrong. And he also reveals that he exists in his providence. The book of Acts, chapter 14. Paul's going out preaching here. And look what he says to the pagans, to the Gentiles, who don't know the true God, not in a saving way. He says, Yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave you rains from heaven and faithful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Through God's providence. Jesus says that God sends rain on the just those who are declared righteous, those who are his, and the unjust. That God gives good things to all people. Children, food, shelter. Why? It says that's his witness to them that he exists. 
So in every way possible, basically, God has shown himself to be God, even to the unbelievers. But don't think that through that people can come to salvation. Don't think that through that the pagan who's never heard the gospel can come to salvation. Later in Romans 10, Paul says, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a preacher? One time I was teaching on that and someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Pastor, I think you're a little narrow-minded. You said people have to hear the gospel to be saved. So, well, ma'am, I'm just saying what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10. The preacher has to go out. They have to hear the gospel. Maybe it's the reading the Bible. And she went on to say, no, there's other ways that people can come to a saving knowledge. I said, well, that's not in the Bible, so I can't preach anything like that. We need the gospel to go out. By the way, when you're talking with somebody who denies that there is a God, or they're just an unbeliever, there's always this discussion in apologetics about common ground. What's our common ground? And usually people go to science or something to talk about that, or logic, or sometimes morality, which is not a a bad way to go. But Paul gave us the common ground right here. Everyone knows there is a God. Don't spend all your time just trying to prove the existence of God. Does Genesis 1-1 do that? In the beginning, God created. Why wouldn't God prove his existence in Genesis 1? That's the best place to do it. Because everyone already knows there is a God. They're just suppressing that truth. And they're doing it in unrighteousness. They're doing it by continuing to sin over and over, searing their conscience, denying that creation speaks of God, and pushing that truth down and ignoring it and twisting it. So that leads us to the last point here, the culpability of all mankind. Culpability. The idea is before a judge, if you're culpable, you're responsible for the crime. Paul just finishes the verse like this, so that they are without excuse. You remember in that Acts passage I just read to you, Paul is saying about God that he did not leave himself without a witness. One of the purposes of sending all that good stuff, even to the unbelieving world, is so that there would be a witness of him. One of the reasons that he created creation to speak of him like this is so that all would be without excuse. He's designed it that way. He's designed it that way. Without excuse means not able to defend themselves. People know that there is a God. They all know that he exists and they know that he's powerful. That's not enough to save them, but it's enough that they can respond rightly to it and they don't. That's the rest of the passage we'll look at next week. But they deny that truth. They know that he's a good God who created and sends rain and food and gives them shelter. And what do they do with that? They suppress it. They deny it. They hate him. Because what would be the implication if there is a good creator God? Then we should obey him and we should follow him. But they don't. Why? Why did we, when we were unbelievers, not want to follow God? Because our hearts are sinful. Because we have a sin nature. Because we spend our life before we're saved trying to ignore the truth of God or push it down or hide it or run from it or suppress it. It should drive them to worship. It should drive them to glorify God, but they don't. They suppress that. And this covers everyone. Paul will say in Romans 3.10, he quotes from Psalms and he says, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. People intentionally do it. If you meet somebody who refuses to hear about God, they refuse to hear about Jesus, or they hear it and deny it, it's not a a mental block, as if you can just get tons of information. You know, here, read these 50 books on theology. That will convince you. The Bible says, no, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Because of their sin, they don't want to believe that. But God says, it doesn't matter. You still know that I exist, he says. Whether it's the first century pagan or the secularist today, or the materialist today, no one has an excuse. They'll be judged for that revelation. If they never got a Bible, they never heard the gospel, they'll still be judged for that revelation that is given in creation about God. Now, some people say, that's not fair. It's not fair. How can God send people to hell who've never heard of Jesus? Well, again, there's some confusion on that. That's missing the point. 
The point is, Paul didn't say, because they didn't hear the gospel, they're going to hell. What did he say? They knew something about God, and they sinfully suppressed that truth. People go to hell for sin. They go to hell for sin, whether they heard the gospel or not. If they hear the gospel and deny it, what is that? A sin. If they don't hear the gospel but deny the truth that God has given to them, what is that? Sin. People go to hell for sin. They go to heaven because of Jesus. It's not exactly parallel like sometimes people think. You go to hell for sin, your sins are forgiven, and you go to heaven because of Jesus. So people are not condemned for not hearing the gospel that they never heard. That would be unfair if God actually condemned people for something that they never even heard of. No, he's condemning them because they have heard the message of creation, and they denied it. They sinned against God. God's not going to condemn an innocent person. Is he? Well, there's not an innocent person. That's the point of Romans 1, the point of Romans 2, the point of Romans 3. There are no innocent people except for Jesus. And he came to die as an innocent man, the God-man, so that sinners could live. Why is Paul telling us all this? Because he's saying, this is why the gospel is so important. Because if people can be saved any other way, why take the gospel to the world? Why send out missionaries and watch them die on the mission field? Why do those apostles go to die if people can be saved through other religions? If people can be saved through creation, just admitting that there is a God? Why? That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the only way that we are going to get the righteousness of God. It's the only way the righteousness of God is revealed. There is no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. There's one way. It's through Christ. So rather than sitting back and saying, why, why, why God this, why God that, Paul's implying, look, we need to take the gospel. If you're really concerned about people who haven't heard the gospel, then let's take the gospel to them. Instead of judging God, which is not our place. Paul said they're all condemned. God will righteously judge them. Let's focus on our task, which is to take the gospel to the world, to those who don't know Christ. Is that just across the world? It is, but it's also here. We live in an age, we live in a society, we live in a city where people are living as pagans. Yeah, they might have gone to church, but they don't really know the Bible. They're making all kinds of excuses. They're denying the little truth they heard when they were growing up that our society once taught about God. We're living amongst pagans once again. I would say turn on the news, but I wouldn't even suggest do that. If you don't believe me, don't turn on the news. That'll depress you. But it is becoming more and more pagan every day. So people need to hear the gospel. Invite them to church. Talk to them. Open your Bible. Give them a Bible. Pray for them. Speak with them about Christ. There's no use sitting back and philosophizing about why they haven't heard the gospel. Let's be the one that takes the gospel to them. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for the truth of this text. It should compel us to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the revelation of your righteousness. There's no other way of salvation, Lord. We need to love the lost so much that we'll tell them the truth. They may hate us for it. They may persecute us for it. They may cut relationships off. But Lord, we want people to be saved because the wrath of God, your wrath is upon them right now, right now. So I pray that you would make us bold for the gospel, that you would give us a loving heart so we might go out and proclaim what Christ has done for us, dying on the cross for sinners. That's our hope. And our hope is in nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.